0: From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson.
1: Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Monday, August 15th, 2022, as we bring you a new show after asking for weeks to see the White Sox put together a series sweep against a lesser team, we finally saw one as the White Sox sweep Detroit at home, making the news even better. The Los Angeles Angels won their series against the Minnesota Twins. So while the White Sox are still two and a half games back at Cleveland for first place, they have caught the Twins for second place. On this episode, we'll talk about the big performances over the weekend from Andrew Vaughn and AJ Pollock. What will the White Sox do at shortstop and center field with injuries to Tim Anderson and Luis Robert? A look at the American League Central this week and preview a big time pitching matchup when Dylan Cease and Justin Verlander square off Tuesday night. We got a lot to discuss. So let's get started. Joining me is the managing editor of Soxmachine.com. It's Jim Margulis and hello Jim. The White Sox Finally honored my request and swept an opponent. They finished the easiest 19-game uh, part of their schedule by going 11-8. and eight. But we got this question from one of our Patreon supporters, Alec. And Alec wrote to us, Jim, Is it bad that while I'm glad the White Sox got the sweep against Detroit, it didn't give me much hope the White Sox could go on a run? Do you share the same sentiments with Alec?
2: A little bit. I can see where he's coming from. I thought it was a solid series. Like, I thought they... They look composed, like when, you know, Lucas Giolito fell behind and then Lance Lynn fell behind on Saturday and Sunday, I didn't get the impression that the game was on the verge of slipping away from them, maybe a little bit with Giolito in the third, but they also suffered from bad luck, like Giolito got the third strike. Not called for him. And then Eloy Jimenez had a terrible route and a ball that bounced on the warning track. Uh, Lynn had some bad luck with uh, Lenin Sosa not handling a a tricky infield chopper and a double hit ball. Like, they both had bad breaks and they both had bad innings and crooked numbers. But once they rebounded and once they got supports, like, you know, Yon Makata had a really nice defensive series and, um, you know, they they started getting strikeouts later in their starts. Like, it, it felt like they were more or less like in control. They just need the offense to catch up and the offense eventually did. So I think, you know, we'll find out, you know, this is kind of the cop-out answer. We'll find out about, you know, how good the White Sox are when they play the Astros, but considering like the general inconsistencies, the pitchers they threw out there, like this wasn't like Dylan Cease and Johnny Cueto getting a sweep. This is Lance Lynn and Lucas Giolito getting a sweep. They did well enough, and I, I think, you know, when you're looking at the schedule, you'll see what the Twins did against the Angels uh, with some late collapses, or at least, you know, one, one late collapse, like when they tried to address the deadline, there's worse. I mean, like, you'd like to see them sweep and have a run differential, like of 12 or something like that, but, you know, if you kind of uh, think the ship has sailed on a string of, you know, offensive performances that regress to the mean and salvage season lines, I, I think this series is good enough.
1: I think we're all going to act differently or think differently. If the white Sox sweep the Houston Astros this week, and that would be a different kind of series sweep than sweeping the Detroit tigers. Listen, they, they needed to sweep the tigers because they've been playing horribly at home. And thanks to sweeping the tigers. Now they're 28 and 29, I guarantee Rayfield. It's better. It's still not above 500, but they are playing better at home. That is a good sign. After the Kansas City series, which was dreadful for the White Sox as they lost that series to the Royals, uh, they were able to salvage this 19-game stretch because in the first 16 games going 8-8 and is just unacceptable. The White Sox got themselves to 11-8 and during these 19 games. And over the weekend, two hitters had big weekends for the White Sox, starting with Andrew Vaughn. Andrew Vaughn has three straight game-winning hits for the Chicago White Sox. And he went 5-for-12 in this series with a home run and 5 RBIs. His last 15 games, he has in his 57 at-bats, 3 homers, 9 RBIs. But he's hitting 351 with a 403 on base percentage and slugging 596. That's really good. And Andrew Vaughn is leading the team in RBIs for the season. And he's currently on pace to drive in 88 RBIs in 2022, which is quite surprising because for... Ever, it seems like Jose Abreu would be leading the team in RBIs. Luis Robert uh, has been keeping pace with Jose Abreu, but obviously Robert is now hurt. Jim, we assume that August Abreu would show up to help carry the offense this month, and Aloy Jimenez has helped carry the load. But now here's Andrew Vaughn on this hot streak, and Rob asked us, Andrew Vaughn is assuming his final form and will smite the Astros, won't he, this week? <laughs> are, are, are we are we seeing the next evolution of Andrew Vaughn, Major Leaguer?
2: Well, I think, you know, we talked about how the, the Astros would tell us a lot. And when you saw Vaughn's hits, like the the flare to right field that wasn't caught, and you saw um, the frustration of the mound when it fell, and you saw the bouncer go through the middle, and then the fielder's choice on a double play that should have been turned, like... You know, theoretically, those could fall for hits against anybody. But I'm thinking back to last October with how well the Astros shifted against the White Sox. And I could see a case where maybe those hits don't fall. And so, you know, maybe uh, the, the, the Babbitt will be harder to come by. But I, I think, you know, the, the strides he's made are very impressive. Like I'm thinking back to last year. Do you remember his performance with runners on, in scoring position and two outs last year? Like how terrible it was?
1: Yeah, it was pretty dreadful, but I don't recall what his final numbers were.
2: He was 3 for 57. Woof. This year, he is 13 for 34. That's a lot better. Yeah, 382 uh, OB—batting average, 462 OBP, 500 slugging. So, like, he looks like he's, you know— covering the plate better. He's going with pitches better. The, the legs look like they're there in terms of getting lift on pitches. He should be lifting and not pulling things in the ground like he did slam the bat on the ground, but then, uh, you know, he recovered and he homeward. So it's uh, pretty cool to see just the year-to-year development, especially, you know, we've talked about just the, the defensive responsibility he's been asked to undertake and the struggles he's been asked to suffer publicly because the White Sox don't have anybody better to play in a corner spot. But no, it's great. You know, just when it comes to the shape of those singles, though, I'm a little bit skeptical that, you know, the the Astros might be better positioned. It, It was funny watching the, you know, the rhetoric around the Tigers and the White Sox and, you know, Al Avila being fired and A.J. Hinch possibly being considered a an heir to the GM seat. Like I saw that rumor pop up that, you know, maybe he could be named GM from the manager seat. And like, I watched the series. And I'm like thinking like, what has AJ Hinch done for this team? Like, you know, when, when talking about like the, the, yeah, I, I guess, you know, I'm coming from it as a Hinch skeptic when the White Sox could have hired him. Like I saw that he basically got run out of Arizona. And then I saw that he succeeded with the Astros. But when it came to the cheating scandal, like he got bullied, like he got overrun, he got ignored. Uh, and and basically, you know, he said he smashed the monitors, but nobody seemed to care. So I just thought like, well, maybe he's just, you know, maybe he's just like a a conduit for the front office. And if it's a good front office organization, he's fine to execute, you know, well-laid plans. But if things aren't going well, he's not a, you know, he's not a miracle worker or he's not somebody who can, you know, rally on the strength of the personality. So I thought this series is kind of fascinating in terms of just how sloppily the Tigers played and just how dead they seem and how, you know, rough of a last month and a half it's going to be in Detroit.
1: Yeah, I mean, Detroit is still lacking on the position player front. Spencer Torkelson's not having the type of season that they were expecting. I think Riley Green has promised, but he's slugging below 400. Javier Baez is not having the type of season that they were expecting. And I, I think they were hoping that, you know, Casey Mize would be able to last the entire season. That didn't happen. Tarek Skubal is having a very good season for Detroit, but now it sounds like he's going to be out for the rest of the season. Yeah, it's going to get worse for the Tigers. And it's it's a collection of their position players not taking a step forward in their progression. Very well-paid players, paid to be a superstar, not performing like a superstar. Yeah. That's the Detroit Tigers right now. And I, I'm not exactly sure what they can do going to 2023 other than taking a page from the elder Illich Ilage. And uh, just spend more money. I mean, that's the only option that they've got is to continue throwing money, more money at their team.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: yeah, AJ Hench is not having a, a great year here. But I thought he did really well last year when they had a terrible April. Yeah, uh, and the Tigers were an above five hundred team at, on May first, and after the rest of the season. So uh, I, I I'm going to wait to see on how 2023 goes. If 2023 takes the same shape as 2022, yeah. then I'll hop on the bandwagon with everybody dunking on A.J. Hinch. But I, I, again, if the options were between A.J. Hinch and Tony La Russa, I think I still side with Hinch. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tony made a really questionable decision. Just quickly touching on this, that Saturday night game, Jim, just being in the stands and just watch it, you know, lay out with uh, Andrew Chafin, the left-handed reliever, facing Gavin Sheets. And I was just wondering, you know, James Fox is sitting next to me, and he's like, watch. He's gonna have Sheets hit against Chafin, and then he's gonna replace Sheets with Adam Engel. And I'm like, that makes zero sense. You might as well just pinch hit Adam Engel then. And it played out exactly how James said it did. And I'm still confused right now on why they just didn't let Adam Engel
2: face Andrew Chafin. But Angle looks pretty rough at the plate though, so I'm wondering if he's you know hiding something or working through something, or his legs work, but his you know maybe upper body. Uh, the way he's swinging is is not really conducive to success. Like, is it, he doesn't seem like somebody who would be dog housed, hmm. like for his effort or for his attitude or anything like that. So I'm wondering if there's like an injury. Like he's not good enough or important enough to where like everybody's hovering on it, like they are with Luis Robert and his wrist. But it does seem like the way they've been playing him, like it wouldn't surprise me if it showed up. Like, oh yeah, he's been having like a wrist or a finger issue that you know he's not gripping the bat well or something.
1: Okay, well.
2: That's so, my theory. So, Let's see if it holds up. Yeah,
1: some clarity would be great because uh, Gavin Sheets should not be facing left-handed pitching at this moment. When it comes to Andrew Vaughn, we know the defensive struggles. And we know that you got four or five guys on this team that should just be dh or their first base DH-type, just like Andrew Vaughn. But with the way that he's hitting, Jim, he's got to play every game, right?
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, like basically... You know, between left field, and right field, and first base and DH, there should be a way to get him in. Like, especially now that they've understood that Yasmani Grandal is not a good choice for DH, you know, by and large. Like, that he shouldn't be squeezed in the lineup no matter what. He did play some first base, which I guess is kind of DHing, given all the other first base options they could play. Not a fan of seeing him play there. I'd rather just see him catch and have him and Sebi Zavala basically be behind the plate only and ride the hot hand. But... Yeah, there, there are ways to play him without like playing him in right field every day. And, and especially, you know, when Jimenez is taking a, a day off here, there from the field and, and you know, they're trying to get a Braille rest. Like he can, he can play every day unless his legs say otherwise. And his legs are really not saying there's nothing about his performance saying that he's hampered in any way. I guess the question that
1: I'm one, I'm waiting for Tony La Russa to answer is that if you have a right-handed pitcher on the mound and you're going to have Sebi Zavala catch are you still going to have Yasmani Grandal DH over Andrew Vaughn? I would hope not. If you're going to still continue having Gavin Sheets in right field and you're going to have Aloy Jimenez in left field, that it's Andrew Vaughn on the bench and it's Yasmani Grandal DHing.
2: Yeah, no, I'd rather see Grandal there, you know, on the bench and ready to you know, swap in for Sebi Zavala, given that, you know, Zavala, the quality of his at-bats is, uh, regressed a little bit seems like he's been figured out somewhat so you know treat him as the backup basically just ride the hot hand catcher that's what I want to see and uh, I don't think either of them is good enough to play anywhere else just because uh you know like you know grinddolph if he gets on he can't run so there's just not a whole lot there
1: well the other player that had a big weekend was AJ Pollock for the series against Detroit Pollock went five for 11. He's got a home run in two straight games, and he drove in three RBIs. He scored four runs, walked twice, only struck out once while batting leadoff for the White Sox. A.J. Pollock's OPS for the season is still bad. It's still 670, but he's 9 for his last 27 in the last seven games. And this has been an interesting conversation, especially on social media when it comes to A.J. Pollock. And it is a question that still lingers because we're not going to see Tim Anderson for at least five more weeks. Is AJ Pollock the answer for the white Sox batting lead off
2: against lefties? He is like looking at his, uh, season line his season splits. Like when he got hot in June, it was because like, a, you know, a decent chunk of his at bats were against lefties and he was smoking them. And the months he's disappeared are months where there's just not a whole lot of action against lefties to be found. Or he's been hurt. So basically, like, lefties... It, it's weird because he was brought in because he was a righty who could hit righties. And now he joins the White Sox. And he's exactly like the, the the perfect distillation of a White Sox right-handed hitter. But, you know, at this point, it is what it is. And you just have to to run with it. But against lefties, definitely easy choice. And, you know, he's not... His bats against righties never look bad. Like, he doesn't look out of control up there. He just doesn't really hit the ball with any authority uh, the way does against lefties. But... Yeah, I, I think just as long as you can balance them, maybe like sometimes, like say when Gavin Sheets comes up and they bring the lefty to face him, like I'd like to, like to see him like uh, draft off a lefty, like Sheets to have like uh, Sheets bait a lefty to come in and then have Pollock there to uh, whomp him because that's he's just been smoking him. So that's kind of I think how you have to work it with Pollock. You know, as long as you righties are, he's not really a factor against them, but he's you know, proven to be. Uh, a real threat against uh, matchup advantage. Uh, I wish it were the other way. I think everybody wishes it were the other way, but yeah, it's it's the White Sox.
1: <laughs> Pollock will see another lefty this upcoming week. And uh, when I watch this series, where was this in June, AJ? <laughs> when I had a stake bet on the line, it's it, it was right. there in the first half of June. I think
2: second half it was just the
1: the lefties yeah, dried it, up. It trailed. <laughs> yeah, it it trailed. I needed this weekend. I needed this weekend in June, AJ. That's all I'm saying. Aloy Jimenez is still hitting well for the White Sox. He's gone 10 for 28 in the last week. August Abreu update. He's hitting 291, but he's got a 310 on base percentage because he's not walking and he's slugging just 418. So, August Abreu so far, two home runs, seven RBIs, really off the pace from his career numbers in August. I am purposely poking the bear here, Jim. So this reverse, a fortune reversal here for August Abreu, uh, and he starts feeding on pitchers in the second half of August. But right now it's starting to be a quiet August for Jose Abreu. But again, we have been burned by, say, by saying that in past years and watch him get really hot. Uh, and the White Sox would need him uh, this upcoming week, which will preview that big series against the Houston Astros later in the show. I want to talk about shortstop. So with Luis Robert injuring his wrist, sliding into second base with the infielder, I think it was Jonathan Scope at the time, blocking Mm -hmm. second base with his knee, we don't have clarity again on when Luis Robert's going to come back. The initial reading was x-rays are negative. It's a sprained left wrist. When I hear sprained left wrist, that's an injured list stint. Uh, You're going to need a couple of weeks for that to heal, and then he's going to come back. Uh, so, we're going to see a lot of A.J. Pollock in center field, maybe Adam Engel in center field. Perhaps it's not sprained and he just jammed it, and he is truly day to day. But we don't know about the situation with Luis Robert when he's going to return. We know the situation with Tim Anderson. He had surgery on the ligament in his hand. He, again, is going to be missing the next five weeks. So, the White Sox need a solution at shortstop. Lenin Sosa City, three for 20. In five games this week, struck out seven times, did not walk once. The defense is a problem, Jim. Mm -hmm. I know that Lurie Garcia, we know Lurie Garcia is dealing with the knee issue because it was evident in Kansas City, uh, but he may have to play through it as it appears that Sosa is a bit overmatched. Are there any other shortstop options available, Jim, or is this just something that the White Sox are going to have to continue throwing Sosa out there and hope that he doesn't drown.
2: I would like to know, like, what the White Sox think about, like, somebody like uh, Andrelton Simmons. i um, looking to see if there's been any activity since he's been uh, DFA. doesn't seem like he's been picked up anywhere. But, you know, he's, you know, can't hit. Like, he's batting 173 this year, slugging, uh, you know, 187 for the Cubs. Like, it's been a mess. But if you just want somebody to be a plus defensive shortstop, a defensive replacement, bat ninth. And if, like, Garcia gets hot and stays healthy and you just want somebody to sit on a bench, Simmons would be happy to sit on the bench. Like, he's, you know, basically at the end of his run. And it's a whole lot more useful to have somebody like him sitting on a bench versus Lenin Soso, who you know hasn't yet mastered AAA and could really use the at-bats there. So, you know, whether it's him, Didi Gregorius was another guy who was DFA'd recently and might be done. But just if you're looking for... Like, if you're treating Garcia as the number one shortstop or 1A shortstop as long as his body allows him to be, then I'm fine with it. Like, you know, I think there's a lot of residual uh, angst over Larry based on the way he was played early in the year when he was batting third for no good reason, when he was uh, playing everywhere and playing for Andrew Vaughn who looked fine and just, you know, spelling everybody didn't want to see him spell uh, it didn't help that Josh Harrison was awful, you know, for the first uh, couple months of the season, and and you know forced Garcia to play there and elsewhere. But now I think we're getting closer to Garcia being fine at the plate as somebody batting at the bottom of the order and filling in at premium defensive positions. So if he has to be the guy to be the gap filler at shortstop with Anderson suffering a significant injury, that's fine. I just I don't think Sosa benefits from playing once out of every three days. Even if I understand perfectly why you know LaRusso would play Garcia two out of three days and and you know, defend him for doing so as long as Garcia is healthy, I didn't defend it when Garcia was swinging all torso. He could not put his legs in the swing. He was collapsing every time he put any measure of torque uh, into the batter's box. Uh, that was that. That really seemed. Reckless or dangerous or, you know, made me think LaRusso was asleep and, uh, you know, NBC Sports Chicago cameras were just bullied by Steve Stone and not showing it. Uh, but when he's, you know, swinging and staying upright and playing good defense, like, fine, play him. You know, I, I think... It was worth seeing Sosa, but yeah, he just looks a little bit uh, in over his head right now, which is fine. You know, he's a young career level. He's been playing really well this year, and he might be somebody with a steep learning curve from the majors, but this is a pennant race, so it, it can't be about development right now if that's what Sosa needs. It just needs to be, uh, that needs to be hashed out at AAA, not the majors.
1: Is it bad to say that Larry Garcia's Swain looks better since he injured his knee and he is all torso? <laughs>
2: Well, it's, it's better than it was that, that, you know, I think there are degrees. I think there are some where it's just a case where like, um, you know, maybe it helps rein him in a little bit better and, you know, uh, slows him down to where he's not spinning out of control. Like I remember when Garcia first came to the organization, when he was traded for uh, Alex Rios and he struck out like 30% of the time and was batting one something and just, I couldn't figure out what his swing plane was. It looked like he was attacking the ball from like five different angles and he didn't know which one is was going to be like. He was learning how to figure out a controller or something like that or never played with like a double joystick for the first time and just had no idea how 3D swinging works. And it was a mess. But now I think, you know, uh, you know, when he does play with a little bit more restraint, you do see that swing level out more and, and, the, and the points of contact are a little bit better. So there might be something to it, but I think there are degrees of... Garcia's legs being able to be involved and I think you know after he got a couple days off Sosa played a couple games straight it was enough for him to you know just get back in the batter's box and actually stay upright when swinging with any kind of aggression
1: let's say Lurie Garcia's knee gets worse and he needs to miss time if it's not Lenin Sosa I mean there's Romy Gonzalez does Romy Gonzalez look okay in Charlotte I know that he's missed a bunch of time he was getting prepared to rejoin with the Knights in Arizona. I know he's on the 40-man roster. Is that it for the White Sox this season? It's, it's Lurie Garcia, Lenin Sosa, and Roby Gonzalez until Tim Anderson returns?
2: Yeah, it's a bunch of guys who are in similar positions like you know, Yolbert Sanchez theoretically can do spot duty at shorts, um, but not really somebody who can play every day there if Garcia goes down. You have Zach Remillard, who's... Played a lot of shorts between uh, you know Birmingham and Charlotte, and he's been playing pretty well uh, at Charlotte this year. He's been a reliable bat, and I'm a fan of his just because he's a uh, an upstate New York guy, Capital Region guy, Cohoes and Troy. Uh, yeah, so anybody who is uh, uh, connected to Troy in any way, I am for. Uh, but that's not necessarily the the best decision making process at this time. I was a big Casper well Wells guy too from Schenectady. <laughs> that didn't really pan out, did it? So yeah, it, it's everybody's in similar straits. Gonzalez has been playing better. It looks like he might be able to salvage the year. But yeah, you know, they're all in delicate positions to where if they come up to the majors, they could be striking out 35% of the time and grounding out when they don't and making errors because it's it's a lot to take on the the key defensive position in the middle of a pennant race uh, especially with guys like, you know, if he hasn't played with Harrison really at all and, uh, you know, hasn't, uh, you know, communicated on pop-ups with other players whatnot. It's, you know, it's, I think it's all the same. So I think it's tricky. That's why I think, you know, should it look like Garcia can't play or Sosa is not going to be playing much. Like I'd rather see them get a veteran who's available and just stick with him. And if, uh, Garcia gets hurt and Simmons or Gregorius, whoever has to bat ninth, like fine, you know, they they can deal with that.
1: We'll see if the White Sox do add from the clearance rack uh, to the team late in the season. But Lenin Sosa not hitting is one thing I can understand. He's 22 years old. This is a big undertaking for him. The defense is a problem and he needs to clean that up, needs to reduce the amount of errors and the misplays to still be a positive contributor for the Chicago White Sox during this critical run. We are going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, but coming up next, we take a look at the American League Central and wildcard race as the White Sox continue to be in the thick of things. Based on our podcast stats, you are probably drinking coffee while listening to this podcast episode, and I want to tell you about trade coffee. I'm not big into coffee, or I wasn't until I visited drinktrade.com. Just because I really wasn't introduced to coffee until college and the coffee that people were drinking was cheap and it was terrible and it, yeah, I didn't want to have any of it. That's probably why my Dr. Pepper habit kicked in. But after going to Trade Coffee's website and taking their coffee quiz, I got a better understanding of what kind of coffee I think I would be interested in. And they're gonna send it up for me, which they're going to send freshly roasted beans from 60 of the country's best craft roasters, small businesses who pay farmers fair prices to sustainably source the greatest beans from around the world. And obviously, I'm not a coffee snob. I'm more of a coffee noob. But if you are a coffee snob or you know what kind of coffee you love best, trades real coffee experts will personally taste test over 450 roasts so they know exactly what to recommend for you because the truth is what i like and what you like could be totally different and i'm sure it will be different and you will like a selection of specific coffees that are different from anyone else's taste i really recommend taking the coffee quiz even if you know what kind of coffee you like best because you just answer a few questions and Trade Coffee personalizes a variety of coffees that can be delivered fresh to you as often as you like, no gimmicks. And it delivers a bag of freshly roasted coffee as whole beans or ground for however you want to brew it or what you got at home as far as your setup. And they'll guarantee you'll love your first order or they'll replace it for free. Trade has delivered over 5 million bags of fresh coffee with more than 750,000 positive reviews. So right now, Trade is offering new subscribers a total of $30 off your first order plus shipping when you go to drinktrade.com slash Machine. That's more than 40 cups of coffee for free. So get started by taking their quiz at drinktrade.com slash Machine and let Trade find you a coffee you'll love. That's drinktrade.com slash Machine for $30 off. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. All right, we take a look at the American League Central standings and week ahead. The Chicago White Sox are 59-56. and They're still two and a half games back of Cleveland. Cleveland played really well in Toronto. They had a chance to sweep the Blue Jays in Toronto, which would have been very impressive uh, and a big statement, but they do take two out of three against the Blue Jays. The Minnesota Twins. Lost two out of three against the Angels, and I chuckle because I watched more Angels baseball outside of them playing the White Sox than I have recalled in recent years, and I'll share my experience there in a moment. Um, but the Twins and White Sox are tied for second place. The White Sox finally caught the Minnesota Twins. Uh, they're both two and a half games back at Cleveland, and they're both two games back in the wildcard. The Twins have lost six of their last ten games and lost the last two where the White Sox have won six of their last ten games and Cleveland has won seven of their last ten games. This week, Cleveland is at home. Four home games against the Detroit Tigers Monday through Thursday before their three-game home series against the White Sox this upcoming weekend. The Minnesota Twins, three games at home against the Kansas City Royals, followed by four games at home against the Texas Rangers. And the White Sox... Four home games against the Houston Astros and then on the road this upcoming weekend against Cleveland in Cleveland. And We got this question, Jim, from Tim Brown. And Tim is asking, is the White Sox winning the division more predicated on the White Sox catching fire or the Twins and Guardians both collapsing? And I know we talked about our feelings after Detroit, but when you look at this week here, the White Sox most definitely have the most difficult week out of these three teams. But, you know, with the Twins not taking care of business against the Angels and losing four out of five in Orange County in Los Angeles, uh, and Cleveland has had their trouble sometimes with Detroit, that if the White Sox make any ground this week, it's because the Twins and Guardians stubbed their toe against Detroit and Kansas City. So is that what we're hoping for?
2: I think it's going to be in between. Like I don't think the White Sox have to catch fire. They just have to play respectably. Like, you know, we're talking about, you know, a stretch where they went 11 and 8. Um, you know, over uh, 19 games against uh, sub 500 opponents. Like 11 and 8 is not catching fire, but that kind of pace is probably good enough to get it done just, you know, with the way the uh, Twins have yeah, their, their deadline moves, especially at the bullpen, did not solve their issues. Um, yeah. and then you look at the Guardians, who are playing well and, you know, they are designed to beat the White Sox, but they can be beaten by other teams. So I don't see any team really catching fire. I think it's just more about steady pressure. And, you know, if they have a, a bad series, like being able to make up for it. Like, I think rebounding is probably more important than dominating, just because I think. Uh, you know, watching the Twins, I think that's the kind of scenario you're you're looking to avoid is just, you know, late collapse after late collapse and um, caving. Because I think, you know, that's probably the, uh, the bigger concern. I think it's not, you know, these teams aren't going to really run away with it. It's going to be like more like the season can get away from them. So I watched a
1: lot of the Minnesota Twins and Los Angeles Angels series this weekend, Jim. With it being the night games after the White Sox game was over and getting an MLB.TV subscription because of the lockout, so season ticket holders this year got a free subscription. I took advantage of it, and that Saturday night game was just crazy, and maybe a bit of a taste of the luck that the White Sox will need if they're going to win this American League Central, because the Angels offense looked absolutely terrible until Shohei Itani hits a home run that Byron Buxton almost caught. And then the bottom of the lineup against Jorge Lopez with runners on first and second, and I think it was at Magnus Sierra at the plate, and he almost hit a game-winning inside-the-park home run, but <laughs> got thrown out at home. Uh, and the Twins don't score in the tenth or eleventh inning, and it's that kind of lucky—I should say—some of the luck that the White Sox will need for the rest of the season. But then we saw on Sunday that the Minnesota Twins only scored two runs, and I think. They went over with runners in scoring position in the last two games. So from a Cleveland perspective, they're playing really solid baseball. They're pitching very well. The Minnesota Twins, rightfully so, focused a lot of their attention on pitching. But they are not hitting, Jim. They they are kind of falling into the same trap the White Sox are in. As in, are we going to score more than three runs today? And I know a lot of folks in Minneapolis are getting pretty frustrated With the Minnesota Twins offense. So with Tim's question. I think a little bit. I think you're right Jim. It is both. The White Sox still have to catch fire. And get a little bit of luck. Because they're in second place right now. Tied with the Twins. And trailing the Guardians by two and a half games. But I think from a Twins perspective. Now that they've caught them. I feel a little bit more confident. That the White Sox can stay ahead. With the Minnesota Twins. I'm going to wait to cast judgment on how the White Sox will handle catching the Guardians uh, this upcoming week. But another angle to the playoffs is still viable, Jim. Because when you look at the American League playoff picture, Houston still has the best record in the American League. They're the number one seed. The Yankees are the number two seed. Uh, as they lost to the Boston Red Sox on Sunday Night Baseball, they continue to struggle Especially since the all star break, Cleveland would be the third seed. Toronto is at 61 and 52. They're the fourth seed. They're a half game ahead of the Seattle Mariners, who are 62 and 54. And Tampa Bay is your sixth seed with a 60 and 53 record. So the White Sox are just two games back of the Rays. For the 6th seed. Uh, and they're a half game back of Baltimore. Who's in this mix with the Twins as well. Uh, chasing the Rays. And you have some key series. Especially in the American League East this week. You got Baltimore at Toronto Gym. And then Tampa Bay at New York. So with the White Sox here. They can split against the Houston Astros. And we'll preview that series in a moment. But if they get split against the Astros. And if New York wakes up. Or Toronto wakes up. And Baltimore or Tampa Bay gets swept. I mean, maybe Thursday we're talking about the White Sox as, hey, guess what, everyone? They're the sixth seed. Uh, that's still another angle for them to get into the postseason. So it, 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 it's, it's a route that I did not expect to be available. But while I still believe the White Sox have to win the American League Central to make the postseason, they're still not out of the race for the wild card.
2: Yeah, I think Baltimore, it, I, I think you can look at it two ways, like Baltimore being good. Uh, or good enough, you know, surprisingly good, I guess is the way to put it, Uh, in the White Sox way that hurts them because it's another team between them and the last wildcard spot. On the other hand, like, I'm thinking of previous years when, like, look at last year, like the Rays 100 games, Boston 192, Yankees 192, Blue Jays 191. Like, that's what I thought the shape of the AL East would look like, and if that's the case, of 91... Doesn't get in the postseason, you know, and it didn't last year because it was uh, only two wildcard teams. Uh, they would, you know, the Blue Jays would have been in, in an expanded wildcard uh, spot. But that's what I thought was like a, a really high bar for entry for a wildcard that the White Sox wouldn't have access to. But I think now when you look at the NL East or sorry, AL East now, and you have like the Red Sox being the worst team there and they're fifty 57 and 59 And every other team is over 500. I think that's finally, I think we're finally seeing like the AL East eating itself a little bit. Like, I think as long as the Orioles were there and losing 110 games, the other teams could pad their stats enough to where, like, you know, if they go like 11 and 8 or 12 and 6 or whoever against like a Yankees or Blue Jays or whatever, they can still go, you know, 14 and 4, 14 and 5 against the Orioles and be fine with it. So I think uh, now that there isn't a patsy, like in the, AL East that might lower the average amount of wins for each team, and that just might drag them a little bit closer to what, what the White Sox can attain, especially if they can, you know, continue beating up on the you know patsies in their division, especially the Tigers. I think the the Royals, you know, as we saw losing three out of four to them, yeah, uh, yeah, the White Sox can't exactly maintain high ground over Kansas City, but Tigers are there for the taking, and I'm glad to see them take it.
1: Yes, they need to continue taking that as well, and they gotta figure out how to beat the Kansas City Royals more consistently. And of course, take care of business or try at their very best against Cleveland this upcoming weekend. But before they arrive in Cleveland, they're still at home and they got a very tough series against the Houston Astros. We're going to take a deep dive into that series next after a quick break.
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about indeed on this podcast. That's indeed.com slash blue wire terms and conditions apply need to hire. You need indeed.
1: Welcome back to the Sox machine podcast. The Houston Astros now arrived to the South side of Chicago and there, they have been playing really good baseball they're 75-41 and 41 of the season. They've won four straight. As we just mentioned, the Houston Astros have the best record in the American League. If the season were to end today, they would be the number one seed. In their last 10 games, the Astros have won seven, and they lead the season series against the White Sox 2-1. to one. The White Sox did win one game in Houston, and we'll talk about that game in a moment. Your pitching probables for this series, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night, these are all 7.10 p.m. Central Time starts. It's Johnny Cueto for the White Sox on Monday. On Tuesday, it's Dylan Cease against Justin Verlander. Wednesday, Framber Valdez will be making the start for the Astros, and it'll be Michael Kopech. And then Thursday afternoon, this is a 1.10 p.m. Central Time start, it's Luis Garcia against Lucas Giolito. And Jim, for this series, and I hope it gets a lot of attention nationwide when it comes to Major League Baseball, Verlander versus. East. And I created this little table for me just to reference while we talk about this excellent pitching matchup. When you're looking at ERA, FIP, strikeout rate, walk rate, and war using fan graphs. Justin Verlander and Dylan Cease are, like, right there behind each other. Verlander's got the edge in ERA. He's at 1.85. Cease is at 1.96. FIP, Cease has the better FIP. He's at 2.6. Verlander's at 2.9. Cease has the higher strikeout rate, as he's at 33%. But Verlander's got the better walk rate. He's at 4.6% compared to Cease's 10.4%. When it comes to war, according to fan graphs, Verlander is second in the American League at four war. Cease is third with a three point six war for the season. The Astros are sixteen and five when Verlander starts. The White Sox are seventeen and six when Dylan Cease starts. And what's fascinating to me is that we've been podcasting together since 2014, Jim. And here we are in 2022, and we're still talking about Justin Verlander being in the way of a White Sox starting pitcher winning the Cy Young. This has been a pretty remarkable season for him, coming off of Tommy John, being 39 years old. He's an easy Hall of Famer, right?
2: Yeah, assuming, you know, the, you know, I, I guess the, the like, Fernando Tatis situation can always get in the way, but I think, you know, if it that's getting fewer and further between those uh you know the performance handling drug charges. So yeah, I mean, rest of his resume is fine. Like the you other know, there's nothing you know wrong with it. He's got awards, he's got wins, he's got counting stats, he's got rate stats, he's got uh you know innings, he's got steadiness performance like he's never really he had that brief blip in Detroit, you know, that looked like he was about to hit his decline like in his early 30s and then bounced back from it. So yeah, it's basically unimpeachable at this point. It would take something severe off the field in order for it to uh, to derail it, and yeah, I wouldn't count on that. For Dylan Cease to be successful against
1: Houston, and this is a big moment for him. I'm sure he's not going to treat it as a big moment, that it's just another game against a very good opponent. But he is now coming into the national stage with his performance, rightfully so. People are now paying attention to how well he's been performing. And nationwide with the writers, I think a lot of writers still have Justin Verlander number one on their Cy Young ballot, but I think more and more writers are having Dylan Cease number two in their Cy Young ballot. And if you get out-duel Justin Verlander Tuesday night, that could go a long way to help out his resume. We know that Dylan Cease is going to throw a lot of sliders in this start, Jim. We've seen the slider usage really pick up for Dylan Cease. And when I look at run value, you can look this up on BaseballSavant.com. It tells you, as far as a hitter, how many runs above average they are against a certain pitch. Alex Bregman, Kyle Tucker, and Jordan Alvarez are above average major leaguers against sliders. Uh, they all slug really well against sliders. Their, their batting averages are okay. They range from like 246 to 267, but they all slug at 500 or better against sliders. So they have proven that they could drive that pitch. Jordan Alvarez, however, whips 33% of the time against sliders. And that's the big strikeout pitch if you want to punch out Jordan Alvarez. He's striking out 32% of the time against a slider. But. For the Houston Astros, they're such a good four-seamer hitting team in 2022 that I think we may see like 55% usage of sliders in this start for Dylan Cease. And if you can get around these three batters, Bregman, Tucker, and Alvarez, Jim, I think he can have a terrific start against Houston. However, when it comes to the slider, it's still all about control. We may see a lot of walks from Dylan Cease, so we know that could get White Sox pitchers into trouble. What are you hoping to see from Dylan Cease in order to be successful against Houston Tuesday night?
2: I think what I'm hoping to see is not necessarily Cease, but the defense behind them, because the Astros don't really strike out. They're, they have the third fewest strikeouts in baseball, second fewest in August. Um, We've seen the Cleveland Guardians, for example, uh, they are the hardest team to strike out. We've seen them frustrate the White Sox with contact and the Astros are equipped to do the same. They hit for more power. So that's what makes them dangerous is they don't strike out and they hit homers. Uh, they're up to 159 homers this year. The White Sox, uh, they didn't get over hundred. The White Sox have 101. Uh, they actually have the same amount of homers in August, 13 apiece. So. White Sox are narrowing the gap a little bit in the home run department. The Astros have been a little bit behind, but they still don't strike out. Um, The the White Sox have 30 more strikeouts than the Astros do in August alone. So when you look at that, that's, I think, what um, concerns me about the series is that, you know, they don't really strike out. They put the ball in play. They put the ball in play with power. So... It's going to be a comment on like you know the Lenin Sosa thing we're talking about the collisions in the outfield having you know try not to have two first basemen in both corners like that's going to be the the difficult part we saw that play up in the ALDS last year with the Astros just being shifted very well positioned to where the White Sox were and the Astros putting everything out of reach and when you see what the the defenses of the White Sox run out there they there are a lot of reasons to believe they could be out of reach of more batted balls this series so that's why yeah it's I think if Cease is gunning for strikeouts they're hard to come by in clumps against the Astros so it really has to be just about you know in his case like you hope that he can be done with plate appearances sooner and and go deeper into games but that requires a defense to be well positioned and convert the plays they can get to and as we saw against the Tigers like they had some great plays like especially Yoan Makata had a great series but Saw some weaknesses elsewhere that they can't really afford against better competition, and that's why I think everybody, as well as they played, or um, you know, you know, otherwise soundly as they played against Detroit, there's a lot of wait and see about what happens these next four games before knowing how to enjoy the sweep against the Tigers. Yeah, I wonder if
1: Cease is going to throw more knuckle curveballs just to get some more grounders, or at least induce grounders, but. I think he's going to throw a lot of sliders. And if he could avoid Bregman, Tucker, and Alvarez doing serious damage against his slider, I think Dylan Cease has got a chance to go toe-to-toe against Verlander. A reminder, Verlander's worst start of the season in 2022 was against the White Sox back on June Mm -hmm. 18th. He was knocked out in the fourth inning. He just went three and two-thirds innings, allowed nine hits, seven runs. Four of those runs were earned. Didn't walk anyone, but he just struck out three. So he was having a tough time getting strikeouts against the White Sox hitters. That was Verlander's last
2: loss. <laughs>
1: <It> was back <laughs> on June 18th. So he hasn't suffered a loss in almost two months. So that's going to be a fantastic pitching matchup. And I wish that ESPN or Turner would pick up the game. So it had some type of national audience as well. Maybe Fox sports. This is one of those pitching matchups that, as many people around the country should be watching because I think it's a great opportunity for those that haven't seen Dylan Cease pitch this year to get an opportunity to see someone that I, could, uh, that I think is going to be one of the next big things when it comes to pitching in Major League Baseball. We've known about it in Chicago, but people are still learning about Dylan Cease across the country, and everybody knows Justin Verlander, so this could be a marquee game for Major League Baseball this week between Verlander and Cease. Uh, Even though their offense is scary, Jim, the Houston Astros have been excellent again pitching-wise. So I think a Mm -hmm. big focus, you mentioned the defense, that's absolutely a focus. The White Sox have to be as clean as possible. But how confident are you in the White Sox offense that they could score more than three runs in any of these games?
2: Not very, um, but... You know, Jimenez is hitting better. Vaughn, as we talk about, hitting better. Like, they have moments. Pollock against lefties. Uh, they have areas, and they've been sequencing uh, productive plate appearances better as of late. It just, you know, comes against the Tigers. So, I think the extra base hits are going to be vital. I think, you know, it helps that they're not playing in Houston with the Crawford boxes there because the White Sox aren't great at pulling the ball to left field. So, at least that's not there, and it's a little bit more even of a playing field Uh with them hosting Houston, but yeah, just if they get into singles mode, that's really tough to generate offense against a team like the Astros, just because we saw how it didn't work, um, against Detroit, you know, and in the, in the game, they won two, nothing. You just see singles and, you know, maybe a walk and maybe some unproductive outs stretching innings long enough for Lenin Sosa to come to the plate and look, uh overmatched and i think that's why you know extra base hits are gonna be crucial even though the you know astros are among one of the best pitching teams too so so it's they're tough Uh, it's a reason why they have the best uh record in the american league and the white Sox are really gonna have to be just on their games like the way they've lost uh games this month the astros is just being outpitched like losing games three to one 2-1, 2-0. 2-1, 2 you know, like They've been low-scoring games, typically, the games they lose, and the White Sox have to win one of those, I think.
1: Yeah, the White Sox starting pitchers, Johnny Cueto's been pitching well. Kopech was awesome against Detroit. We'll see in how Giolito does against the Houston Astros. There is the possibility that all four of these guys can hold Houston's offense in check. Maybe keep them at three runs. But that's where I think the rub is for the White Sox. Can they score three runs or more against Houston's pitching? They sh- they shocked us in the type of performance they had against Justin Verlander. That's their one win this season against the Houston Astros. I think they're going to have to shock everyone again uh, a couple of times. So they're going to split this series against the Houston Astros where they surprise everyone uh, and score five or more runs. And that's may that's that might be all that they need again with Cueto, Cease, Kopek, and Giolito lined up against the Houston Astros in this series. And we'll see on where the White Sox and how they do against the Houston Astros as we record the next episode of the podcast Thursday night to recap the White Sox at Astros series before the White Sox head to Cleveland. Fingers crossed, the White Sox are still above five hundred, Jim. Uh, on Thursday. If they are not, it's because the Houston Astros swept uh, the White Sox. So I'm hoping that it's not the case, but it's definitely a possibility. Well, coming up next, it's time to answer some questions from our Patreon supporters in P.O. Sox.
0: You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox.
1: Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our
0: favorite part of the show where you, our Patreon supporters, get to
1: ask the questions. And if you would like to submit a question or topic for a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, or if you just want more from us at Sox Machine, go sign up to become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash Machine. The first Bo Sox question that we got, Jim, comes from Joe. And Joe wrote to us, how did this team go from being fun and exciting to the unlikable bunch they are now, even after this three game sweep of the tigers. I know Tony La Russa gets a lot of the blame and rightfully so, but it definitely seems like some of the players bought into their own hype and expected to have success without continuing to put forth the effort needed.
2: I think, you know, the two things are lack of homers, um, just because home runs are fun. That's when you see the personality come out and the, uh, yeah, everybody gets to their feet, everybody cheers, surge of excitement. The surges of excitement have been few and far between, especially at home uh, until this recent stretch, and it looked really fun. Like uh, You got some good crowds this weekend uh, at guaranteed rate, and seeing them rise to the feet, seeing the lower deck full, and and you know, having these kind of games, that's what you want to see Like in front of a home crowd to, to make them feel like they're getting their money's worth. So that was cool, but there just hasn't been that kind of those kind of bursts of excitement, so the crowd has nothing to give them positive feedback about. So just it seems like an uh, endless cycle of just low energy. And I think the other thing too is just you know the yeah I, I've mentioned this before you know whether here whether on our uh, appearances with uh, uh, Bernstein and Holmes on the score, but talking about like the the biggest question to me is just how legit those leg injuries and the governing of hustle was like, there's no way to simulate the season and say like, what if you had Rick Rentria there, you know, demanding hustle, would there be like a, a double digit body count on the injured list? Would you need like Adam Hazley playing 110 games because nobody else can stay healthy? Was there a reason for it? Um, that seems to me to be one of the biggest, or I guess like, it's a unique situation to have a a case where like two-thirds of the lineup is not allowed to run uh, on normal baseball plays where normally like you know running down the line pretty hard would not be questioned or not be a reason for uh, notice one way or the other and I think there has been a uh, pervasive effect to just you know maybe how the offense looks like when they can't hit homers and they need every single they can get and then you just kind of uh, linger on the singles they didn't get or the doubles that. Uh, they didn't get. Or in, you know, even A.J. Pollock. Uh, you had a double that could have been a triple had you been running all the way into second instead of breaking down you know, halfway there. Um, that's, I think, just been so... Um, you have know, such a pall over the course of the season just watching the guys not being able to run and wonder, like, are they all there? Are they playing at 65%? And that's the reason they're not homering or running. And it just comes off as being a very low-energy and lazy affair, even if... They are indeed uh, guarding something. And uh, going into the winter, I, I think that's something that the White Sox have to really look at, have to really, you know, whether it's an overhaul of their trading program, whether it's trading some guys away and bringing guys who are uh, more reliable in the lower body department. I think that's, you know, that's what it comes to. Just because it feels like, you know, maybe you can get away with one guy easing up or two guys, uh, you know, Having to take it easy, especially like say Yasmani Grandal last year after the knee surgery, like you know, he he smoked the ball, and if he put the ball on the ground, you didn't expect him to run because he just had knee surgery, and that's fine. But I think there's a bit of a um, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, you know, in a kind of a tangent, but uh, you'll understand why I'm saying it. Like, I'm thinking of like the Royals, uh, when 10 players weren't vaccinated. And, you know, they had to basically send a half AAA team to Toronto. And part of me wondered, like, if, if they looked at the schedule and say, like, oh, the All-Star break is right after. If I don't get vaccinated, I get eight days off. And nobody talked to each other. And all of a sudden, they all showed up, you know, the week comes and realized, like, Oh, I didn't know this many people were not getting vaccinated. (laughs) Like they realized, like everybody thought they had a genius plan, and nine others thought they had a genius plan, and all of a sudden it looks like the the team is a mess because it looks like uh, they just aren't playing for each other. And I, you know, I'm thinking the same way in terms of hustle. Like if you have two guys masking something because, or not masking, but just you know, governing themselves because of known injuries and they're playing well around it, or at least providing their strengths around this one weakness, that's fine. But when you have six guys doing it. I imagine there has to be some kind of carryover effect to where, like, just you know, between the balls they're putting into play weekly because they don't have their lower halves on them, and also the 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 hits they're not getting and the balls they're not getting to because they're not running as hard because they're kind of conditioned themselves and they're not hustling if they don't think they need to. I think that's got to add up in a way the White Sox maybe didn't anticipate.
1: Now, that's really interesting stuff. I I do like the conspiracy theory. It's kind of like in the corporate world. Hey, Fourth of July is on a Tuesday. I'm going to take Friday, Monday off because I get Wednesday off and I just bought myself like a five or six day vacation only using two vacation days. Oh, look, everyone else in the office thought the same thing too.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, uh, you know, they didn't have to put in leave requests for this this case with Toronto. They just, uh, all they had, they had to do was uh, not have a card. Yeah, evidently. And uh,
1: Yeah. That's, that's a pretty interesting conspiracy theory. I'm going to let that stew for a little bit more and see if I, how much I buy that in the next couple of weeks. But you do bring up a pretty good point. Joe, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Andrew Seagull. And Andrew wrote to us, what are your thoughts on moving Lucas Giolito or Lance Lynn over the offseason? What about re-signing Johnny Cueto?
2: I think, you know, Lynn is probably the one worth keeping between the two of them just because his power is back... Um, yeah, it's not really a velocity thing with him. I think it's more of a matter of just trying to optimize, or I think part of it's just execution seems to lag a little bit early in his starts and then he figures it out. Just more of a matter of limiting the damage early on. Um, but the power is there, the, 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 the sharpness of the breaking stuff is there. So I feel like he's pretty close considering that he used a lot of the season, you know, as a live ramp up giolito is one i don't quite know yeah i think there are a couple variables one is that like you know covid did happen to him and his stuff did drop off afterwards and you know james feegan asked about it, he wrote about it and said like that you know ethan katz's opinion was who knows and giolito's opinion was who cares because like even if it did matter or even if it did have like a known impact on his stuff like he can't do anything about it uh now so the situation is what it is and he has to plow ahead with him throwing 93 instead of 95 but the one thing i wonder about is with ethan katz now here and with giolito struggling like you know the uh you know his away from the team guru is now you know in the house and it's still not happening real time so part of me is on guard to where like oh giolito is just you know he's you know maybe like a high maintenance pitcher to where like it just takes Everything being perfectly in sync, and also him being 100% in order to have the fastball, he needs to make his the rest of his arsenal play up so effectively to where he's like a Cy Young candidate. So I do wonder if it, like it makes sense to trade him now before you can exhaust like every possibility of him getting better and just him being like a fourth or fifth starter at best, like a back end starter, which is what he's been pitching at since he came back from the uh, COVID list. So. That's that's my opinion between those two starters and you know Gilito, I think you know as surprising as it seems the White Sox could trade him like you know he's got one year of control left like it could be a case where just he doesn't look like a bet to a great bet to uh, you know convert on the contract he wants to get in the White Sox elsewhere like Cueto is I think he's been a great fit it's it's funny that Tony Larusa said like you know what does he mean we're not playing with fire. You know, we can turn double plays. You know, if we uh if we weren't playing with fire, do you think we wouldn't be able to turn a double play, which is really weird. Um, yeah, you know, I think that comes to him being a, you know, the defense lawyer that he often is. And you know, sometimes uh clients get the defense they deserve, and I think sometimes the white Sox uh, you know are worthy of, you know, mailing it in in terms of defending them. But you know, after the series, like he was asked about, he said, like, we certainly played more fire. He saw it, right? So, you know, he goes from not admitting it to admitting it in a roundabout fashion that uh, the effort might have been lacking. But, you know, Cueto, you know, if he does somehow become this figure that's, you know, pitching in the sixth inning and leading by example, but also, you know, calling some, you know, he didn't really call specific teammates out, but he called teammates out just in terms of like, um you know everybody you know, a lot of people i think in the dugout could realize like oh you know yeah i did not i did not get that single that you know that could have kept an inning alive because i didn't run or you know just to, it's a case where i took my uh you know i tried to turn two before i turned one like i think every every player on the team basically has made enough mistakes to where like if you know, they heard Cueto saying something like they could look at themselves a little bit closely and say yeah i'm not i'm not getting the job done right now so if he continues, he finishes the season like he is, like he could occupy a very, um, like maybe the part that Dallas Keuchel thought he always envisioned handling, like I'm teaching this team how to win. Like they didn't know anything about winning and now I'm here. So let's let the winning begin. And I think, you know, I I think uh, Keuchel liked the smell of his farts a little bit too much to really um, (laughs) carry that persona all the way through. But I think Cueto just, you know, he might be able to fill that job a little bit more and you know i'm thinking like the kind of contract he could get is maybe like two for 24 you know, going into next year given his age and given like his injury history in the recent past like two for 24 like that might make sense if like giolito is no longer there so i think if you know is gonna be making more giolito's making more Lin's making double digits like they have to you know not every pitcher can make uh you know, 10 plus million because, as we know, this roster is going to get very expensive in other places and they need to figure out how to rearrange it. But in a case where they trade Giolito and that's one salary off the books, like maybe they retain him. But I, I think, uh, when it comes to the pitching staff, like you know, I, I've said this before is like the pitching staff is fine, as frustrating as it is to watch Lynn and Giolito one through five, they're in better shape than a lot of other teams, a lot of other postseason contending teams. It's the offense that's the issue, so. Um they can cut from the pitching staff a little bit to address problems elsewhere. Um a little bit of a robbing Peter to Pay Paul, but I think you know, if they try to get away from Giolito before everything caves in or before he hits free agency and just has no trade value, like they might be um, inspired to cash in on that a little bit.
1: I'm expecting Lucas Giolito to quote unquote have the best off season of his professional career this upcoming winter and fall. Uh, just because his earnings mm-hmm. are, is on the line. His career earnings is on the line in 2023. He needs to be a sub 3.5 ERA if he wants a type of contract that he thinks he deserves. He's definitely not getting it now. And, you know, with the start against Detroit, I made a lot of hubbub about if the White Sox are going to make the postseason. Lucas Gilito's is probably not getting a postseason start. And people got on me because, and you mentioned early in the show about Aloy tracking that fly ball to left field. Maybe Lucas Giolito shouldn't be allowing 99-mile-per-hour exit velocities on average against his slider, which we continue to say is a terrible pitch. And the less times he throws that pitch, the better for him because it seemed like when he was elevating the fastball, all of a sudden the Tigers hitters couldn't hit it. Uh, And they were really struggling against Giolito a second and third time to the order, which was shocking because they were really on Giolito early in the game. And yeah, maybe a competent left fielder makes that catch, but it's right at the wall. And Luis Robert is skittish around the wall. The only outfielder I would be able to say for the White Sox in 100% confidence would have caught that ball is Adam Engel. But there was a lot of hard contact early in the game for Lucas G Leto. If he pitches just like he did against Detroit this upcoming Thursday against Houston, he will be lucky to only allow four runs against the Houston Astros. He did hit 95 on the fastball later in the game. That is a good sign that he still has it in the tank, but he's got to be a consistent 95 mile per hour, four seam fastball to be where he was in 2020 and 2021. I just don't know how much value there is right now. I think teams will look at, look at Lucas Giglio in the offseason gym and try to rip off the White Sox. Mm-hmm. Be like, yeah, you know, yeah, he, he was struggling a little bit. We'll, we'll give you these two prospects that are intriguing. They're in AAA. They're ready to contribute in the major leagues in exchange for Lucas Gilito, Knowing that here's one thing that we can do to get Giglio to increase velocity. Boom, he's throwing 95 we just gotta steal. Like that's how I view the White Sox possibly trading Lucas Giolito. Teams would be try to rip it, try to rip off the Chicago White Sox for Lucas Giolito and Lance Lynn. I don't know what his trade value is in the offseason as well. So at this moment, my working assumption is that both Giolito and Lynn will be part of the White Sox in 2023. But you're just not gonna get a lot of value from Lucas Giolito right now because. He's a pitcher who's got a five ERA.
2: Yeah, Lynn at least has the team option, though. So that gives teams a little bit of flexibility if they like what they see. Sure. I just again yeah. I, the
1: White Sox may like what they have in Lance Lynn and they may want to keep Lance Lynn yeah. for
2: 2023.
1: The, the topic of is Lucas Giolito going to be with the White Sox long term, that is legit. And that is something the White Sox will have to consider and think about as far as the team construction going to 2023 if you're not going to be able to sign lucas giolito to a long-term deal maybe you do have to move him. andrew excellent question this is a question that's going to come up again after the season while working on off-season plans thank you so much for asking it our next question comes from benny and benny wrote josh what are the vibes like at home games right now do fans still think we have a chance and do they care as much as now as they did to start the season I know with football season looming, some interest will be lost as well. Well, Benny, from my perspective, sitting in section one hundred eight, that's where we have our full season ticket plan. You have die-hard White Sox fans there, so they're always internal optimists, I, I should say. Like they're they have hope, and I have hope that we're still going to see some home playoff games in two thousand twenty-three. Because, what did we sit through the rebuild for if they don't make the postseason this year? Again, if there's like the lesser of two evils and making the postseason is one of those lesser evils, well, then yes, let's take that because. Talking about an 85-win White Sox team, but they sneak into the playoffs. Well, that's a lot better than talking about an 82-80 and White Sox team. And we don't know what the future holds in 2023 when it comes to payroll and who the White Sox could possibly be moving. We just had that podcast episode with Sox Machine Live just last week. It's not a very fun conversation to have. So I think White Sox fans are still hopeful, but man... Going back again to the Riley Green fly ball, Mm Jim, everybody, when that fly ball was hit, thought it was gone. Like, thanks, Lucas. You just gave up a grand slam to the Detroit Tigers. And whenever the opposing team scores first, there is a lot of angst, kind of like the wind got knocked out of you because you just don't know if this offense is going to come back. Like, oh my gosh, the other team scored two runs in the second inning. Is this game over? More times than not this year at home, the answer is yes. And that's a terrible feeling. But hopefully this series with the White Sox coming back, uh, able to overcome early deficits, that the buzz is there at Guarantee Rayfield. White Sox fans are hungry. They are hungry for this team to make it to the postseason, to go deep into the postseason, and fulfill the promise that was made before the rebuild start that there would be parades for the Chicago White Sox coming soon. But, you know, we're not idiots either. Like, if the White Sox stumble and they fall below five hundred, and it's early September, the conversation's going to shift to what's wrong with the White Sox to how is Justin Fields doing. And that time is coming soon, Benny. So I, I think that's the best way I could put it right now, what the vibes are at, guarantee rate field. When you're watching the White Sox at home through the TV gym, what's the vibe that you're getting?
2: Uh, fairly flat, but I did think like the Sunday crowd looked really, looked really. I mean, there were highlights. There was a steady stream of offense over the course of a game. Even like when they gave up two runs, like uh, Pollock answered with the homer to get the crowd immediately back into it, and not let them you know linger on that two zero score too long. And then you know, a couple of innings later they score three and then add offense later. So it seems like that was the kind of crowd that you know Sunday crowds sell out or they sell pretty well, those games in the lower bowl disappear pretty early, Fam- families make plans around those games, you know, early, you know, they're in a whole lot of walk up sales for Sunday, like those are ones where people plan their summers around or at least people plan like one Sunday a month to go to those games with their family. So I think like, that's the kind of crowd that strikes me as like, they just want something, anything to cheer for. And if you do, they'll respond pretty well. So that game jumped out to me, like especially like with Kendall Graven on the mound, like cheering, you know, trying to cheer him, close him out. Like they rose to their feet faster. They were on every strike faster. So that's the kind of crowd where, you know, come September, if we're talking about like postseason games, key divisional matchups, I think you could see that crowd show up and really be into it, but the offense just needs to give them something to latch onto. I mean, like they can, you know, cheer Dylan C strikeouts and, you know, escape, uh, jobs with the bases loaded from the pitchers, but like that always feels tenuous, like cheering, pitching, cheering defense is always like, well, we got out of that one, but it's still tied. Like, so offense needs to generate like the crowd enthusiasm. And I think like it takes steady competent efforts where they're drawing walks, creating threats, and then eventually you know that the the dam breaks and they score runs and they take the lead. Like that's what they need to to really have the crowd engaged. And that showed up on Sunday, not so much on the uh, the two nothing game where they needed a bloop single to get the job done late in the game.
1: Yeah, uh, Friday was boring. I will admit Friday was boring. The post game concert, if you like Cascade, I'm sure you had fun if you're sitting behind a home plate or if you got on the infield. I would love to know what that experience was, but just chilling where I usually sit at the stadium, didn't get the best experience. The White Sox are trying. They're they're trying to make it the best fan experience possible at Guarantee guaranteed rate field, but you're really not going to get the party atmosphere until the White Sox start hitting a lot better at home, and that starts with hitting a lot more home runs at Guarantee Rayfield. When we see that happen, then the vibes will be at an all-time high at Guarantee Rayfield. But Benny, thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Sox. If you would like to submit a question to us in a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, again, you can sign up at patreon.com slash Machine, where our Patreon supporters, they get more. They get exclusive content. They get ad-free versions of the podcast website. And we're gonna have new socks machine swag soon, so teaser there. But when we do get that new swag, they're the first ones to get it. Monthly plans start at two dollars, or you can save with an annual subscription. Again, sign up at patreon.com/socksmachine. That will do it for this episode of the Socks Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. Again, we'll be covering the White Sox-Houston Astros series in depth this week, so make sure to visit SoxMachine.com daily. Follow us on Twitter at SoxMachine. You can follow me on Twitter at SoxMachine underscore Josh. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Spotify and Apple Music. And the Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire podcast network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson.